Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Just the other day, I watched a uh, movie with my wife. Um, it was called Sabina, and it was on the, about the story of uh, uh, the couple that founded Voice of the Martyrs. Um, as uh, Sabina's husband, Richard, had uh, been an atheist, and well, actually, they were both atheists, but they uh, became um, uh, Christians um, as a result of uh, yeah, some quite impressive um, answers to prayer, actually, and um, challenging God, and they they learned to um, to to witness. Uh, for for God and um, and the Bible uh, and uh, initially they were in, uh, their initial work was during the and their conversion was during the Second World War but they continued on uh, after the war um, witnessing in in communist uh, countries and they suffered a lot of um, persecution I think the husband Richard. Um, was uh, jailed for 14 years and uh, including three years of solitary confinement in the communist countries and uh, the wife too was, was put into prison the uh, Sabina um, uh, but one of the interesting things of course was that these communist regimes uh, denied the existence of God there was no God um, and today there are, uh, are many governments that are uh, the official position is that there's no God. Um, and unfortunately, in many Western countries, while it's not the official position, um, this is becoming a default position via education as we have our secular education you know, pushes the whole idea that science can explain everything and, um, you know, where's the evidence uh, for God? Well, of course, the evidence for God is there in um, in amazing answers to prayer and, and miracles that are, that are still happening. Uh, one of the things that Im- impressed me in the film... Um, when, uh, which is a, a, a true story, it was uh, it was actually made by Voice of the Martyrs. That it's a biographical film um, of uh, of this couple that um, founded the organisation to sort of reach, uh, yeah, p- particularly uh, people who were missionaries uh, in communist countries where they were facing fear, fierce persecution often, and the. Um, in the film, it portrayed that um, the uh, the guy was in a um, a TB hospital, a TB uh, sanatorium in um, in the mountains in in Europe, um, trying to recover from uh, the disease tuberculosis, and um, you know he saw people dying, and he as he was there contemplating, uh, and he he'd lived you know a very affluent worldly lifestyle prior to this that uh, you know was there a purpose in life you know was, was there a creator did all this you know amazing scenery and 
and uh, beautiful plants and flowers and this sort of thing. Uh, how did that come? Was there a creator? And he had an experience uh, while visiting uh, a cemetery. Once he'd, he got a little bit better and was allowed to go for walks and he walked and was sitting in a, a cemetery contemplating that all these people, they had lived but now they're dead. What was going to happen to them? Was there um, a future for uh, these people or, or was death the end? Were they just going to, to rot away? And so one day he, he challenged God. He prayed a prayer and said, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. If you really exist, reveal yourself to me because I don't believe that you exist. And just then there was a man passing by or a few moments later a man was passing by and, um, and started talking to him and... Um, and then recognised that uh, Richard was a Jew. So originally they were uh, secular Jews. They didn't practice uh, Judaism, but they were, you know, um, Jews by descent. And uh, Richard uh, answered, well, yeah, he's a non-practising Jew. And uh, the man said, my wife and I have been praying for you. And this really stunned him. And he said, I brought along this Bible uh, that, uh, to give to you. And uh, the guy was taken aback because he'd just prayed this prayer challenging God uh, to reveal himself. And uh, the, the man said, look, we have been praying for some time that we would be able to witness um, about Christianity uh, to a Jewish person. And so uh, Richard took the Bible and that began his journey in, in finding God as he followed up, began reading it, started going to um, an Anglican church and then later went on to become a, a, a Lutheran pastor. And um, it's, uh, it, it's quite, quite powerful. Uh, it was certainly a, a powerful film. Uh, and an amazing witness to the lives and what they achieved uh, through faith. So we have this overwhelming evidence just in the daily lives of, of Christians, of answers to prayer, uh, providential care and so forth and leading in the lives of Christians. But we also have scientific evidence. We have really powerful scientific evidence now for the existence of a creator. Um, and it's such a shame that this, uh, again, you know, isn't being emphasised. And, of course, it's not being taught in communist countries. And now how foolishly in Western countries where we have the freedom to read the Bible, people are being taught science in such a way that they're being given the impression that, you know, you don't have to believe in the Bible. We, that you know, Young people are taught evolution. Evolution is absolutely impossible. It can't happen. And one of the reasons is the chemical DNA that um, we'll, we'll talk about. And um, one of the articles that I came across on this is in the book Design and Catastrophe, 51 Scientists Explore Evidence in Nature, which was published by Andrews uh, University. Uh, just this uh, in uh, 2021. And um, uh, Dr. Sven Ostring uh, contributes um, and uh, he has a, a PhD in um, 
the area related to uh, sort of electrical engineering and programming. And um, he writes that uh, back in 1869, um, the Swiss doctor Friedrich Mischner, Mischner um, was working at the University of uh, Tübingen and um, he was studying the chemical composition of uh, cells in surgical bandages, in the pus of surgical bandages that he received from um, after hospital operations. And uh, he discovered a, a substance there that didn't seem to be either a protein or a fat. And um, he, he found this in the nucleus of the cells that he was studying uh, in, the, um, in the pus from these bandages. And he called it nuclein. Uh, but it was really another 75 years later before Francis Crick and James Watson received uh, recognition for their role um, in uh, studying um, the X-ray structure, using X-rays to study the structure of these compounds. And um, the, they were studying the coiled strands of nucleon and they figured out the structure, the double helix structure, of the molecule, which then, once they knew the structure was renamed uh, DNA, which stands for uh, deoxyribonucleic acid. So deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. A lot easier to say DNA. And, of course, while the structure is you know, pretty exciting, um, it's uh, DNA literally contains the codes for all the different life forms on Earth. Um, and it reveals, as uh, Dr. Ostring points out, that life is not just physics and chemistry, but also includes information. Now, this is a super challenge for evolution, really, because... Um, if evolution just deals with physical things, information is a, is a non-physical thing. It's an abstract sort of thing. And it's interesting that the atheist uh, Richard Dawkins observed that, and, um, that after Watson and Crick, Dawkins points out that we now know, because of the discovery of Watson and Crick, that uh, genes themselves are long strings of pure digital information. Um, and, and even Dawkins admits, and he writes, what is more, they are truly digital in the full and strong sense of computers and compact disks, not in the weak sense of the nervous system. The genetic code, and this is a quote from Dawkins, the genetic code is not a binary code as in computers, nor an eight-level code as in some telephone systems, but a quaternary code with four symbols. The machine codes of the genes is uncannily, uncannily computer-like, and so um, Sven Ostring points out. Dr. Ostring points out that in short, DNA functions as an information system that encodes, stores, and retrieves the information needed for life itself. And this information system uses an alphabet. It uses an alphabet code. Um, it uses four nucleotides, um, adenine, cytosine, 
thiamine and guanine, which are represented by A, C, T and G. Australian Capital Territory is good. <laughs> That's an easy way to remember it, I do anyway. And um, it's interesting that um, alphabets, um, and of course some computer systems use uh, binary alphabets, zeros and ones. Uh, of course the English alphabet has 26 letters. Um, why do, and he asks the questions, Ostring asks the question, why does it have four letters? Now, the Hungarian theoretical evolutionary biologist, Jörz uh, Zasmeri, asked that very question. And by understanding an information, um, theoretic study of the genetic information system, he was able to show that a four-letter genetic alphabet is optimal with respect to compromise between two factors. And so the two factors were copying fidelity and catalytic efficiency. So as the size of the genetic alphabet increases, the catalytic efficiency increases. However, as the alphabet size increases, the copying fidelity decreases. And so Strasmeri proposed that the genetic alphabet is a frozen evolutionary optimum for the hypothesised RNA world in which life was supposed to have originated. Um, and um, it's reassuring to know, of course, that uh, the alphabet that encodes everything about us, together with advarks, bobcats, coyotes, and all the way down to zebras, is really optimal. And so, of course, these scientists are studying it. Uh, I mean, Ostring is a, um, is a creationist, but uh, these other scientists, including Dawkins, of course, are studying it from an evolutionary point of view. But it's interesting, this finding that the using a four-letter system seems to be optimal in terms of its ability to just um, create meaning but at the same time preserve um, or reduce copying errors. And um, it's um, interesting. In February 2019, Stephen Benner and a large team of researchers um, were able to um, expand the genetic alphabet from four to eight by making small adjustments in the molecular structure of the standard uh, nucleotides. Um, they were able to create four new nucleotides, which they used the letters S, B, P and Z. So Banner's expanded genetic alphabet shows that the standard genetic alphabet is not the only one physical property uh, possible. So where did it come from? Um, there, so what uh, these scientists showed well there could have been other possibilities that could have formed but why just this one that seems so perfect uh, it's interesting Ostring observes that there are four explanations for the origin of the genetic alphabet and he says one it's physically necessary for a genetic alphabet to have four nucleotide letters the research work of Benner and his team in expanding the genetic alphabet has demonstrated that this explanation. 
um, is 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 not true. So there don't there doesn't have to be four four letters as they've shown. Um, the genetic alphabet contains four letters by chance. So what we what um, he's looking at is. Uh, um, What's the explanation for the four letters? Um, is it physically necessary? Well, Banner said no. Um, could it arise by chance? So the work of Strasmerius demonstrate that the size of the genetic alphabet is optimal and the probability that the optimal four-letter alphabet would be landed on simply by chance is vanishingly small. Um, other explanations are therefore more likely to be true. So what he's saying is the chances that it could form by chance is you know, very close to impossible. Another explanation that's been put up is that the four-letter genetic alphabet evolved. The difficulty with this explanation, according to Ostring, is that there are no empirical evidence that the genetic alphabet evolved. Evolution requires a self-replicating mechanism, but this requires an information system that is based on an alphabet. There is no evidence that any protogenetic alphabet existed. Therefore, for the genetic alphabet to evolve, it would have required some form of chemical evolution process. And it must be emphasised, though, that we have no empirical evidence of this chemical evolution process. So it's fair to say that all chemical evolutionary explanations for the origin release of life um, have reached an impasse. And of course he said the last explanation is that the genetic alphabet was intelligently designed. Like every other alphabet we know of, including the expansion of the genetic alphabet that Banner and his colleagues have achieved, and notice there quite intelligent designers and it took a whole team of experts to to design an alternative uh, one, S, P, B and Z. Um, so what uh, Ostring argues um, uh, on, uh, argues is that uh, the evidence that we have that is powerfully supporting that DNA must have been created by a designer. It's not something that is a physical necessity. It's um, it, the chances of it arising by chance are vanishingly small, almost to impossible. Um, the and the four-letter genetic alphabet again would have, if it evolved somehow. There's no evidence of that or no mechanism for that as well. So that's quite fascinating and a very important point. And. Another scientist, Dr. Orles Yolano, uh, uh, is a, um, a molecular bio- biologist um, who learned, earned his PhD in the University of the Philippines. He talks about the, um, you know, some of the amazing uh, properties of the uh, DNA molecule. Now, it's interesting that... Um, the uh, Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins, who worked out and we, or headed the team that worked originally worked out the structure of the human genome, in other words, the human DNA molecule, um, believes that God must have created life. And I think, you know, as they studied DNA, they recognised it had to be created because 
Um, you know, DNA is an amazing molecule. If it was straightened out, the total DNA in a human cell would stretch about one and a half to three metres. So this is pointed out by Dr. Yolano in his article in the same book, Design and Catastrophe, 51 Science to Explore and Evidence in Nature. Um, and he's written an article, DNA, a magnificent nanomolecule. And um, the, um, the human genome contains around three billion base pairs of 46 chromosomes, um, in about 10 to the power 13 cells in the body. Um, in other words, the total length of DNA in an adult human being um, is, and this is amazing, is 2 by 10 to the 13 uh, metres long. So that's long enough to wrap around the earth 500,000 times. Now, you know, so all these cells, 10 to the power 13 cells in the human body, each have this uh, piece of DNA stretched out, which would be, you know, one and a half to three metres long. And that's the length of the molecule if it was stretched out. And when you add up all the lengths in all the cells, the total length of that molecule would be long enough to wrap around the earth half a million times, 500,000 times. You know, it blows your mind, doesn't it? Now, when you think about how evolutionists require these molecules and, and large you know, molecules like DNA to have formed by chance, not only is it you know, chemically impossible for them to form by chance, particularly in water, uh, in aqueous solution, which they reckon life evolved in, um, but also to you know for the the chemistry to form the 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 structure, and you've got to have millions of identical molecules. It it just blows the mind the amazing structures that are in nature that we have no idea of, um, and evolutionists have to believe that these structures form by chance. And thus, this uh, Dr. Yolano points out, thus DNA is considered one of the most extended molecules on Earth. In spite of, uh, and he writes, in spite of this very long configuration, it's well designed to fit inside the nucleus of a cell without distorting the encoded information. It has a stunning coiling ability too. The folded and packed DNA molecule is approximately 10,000 times shorter than its linear form. So the way it's folded and coiled shrinks its length by 10,000. Again, this is it's just incredible. And even though this nanomolecule is tightly packed, it can quickly unpack when the right signal is recognised by the cell. Also remarkably, the uncoiling of DNA requires accurate sequential actions of what they call topoisomerases, their enzymes, to unpack the DNA supercoils. And so again, all these structures have to be there. And I think what happens is students are presented with such a simplistic view initially that they become enamoured with evolution. And then, of course, when they get to university, 
and um, and learn about some of these amazing details. Of course, they're so fi- firmly fixed on evolution that it doesn't occur to them, hang on, this is all impossible for this sort of structures to have arisen by chance. Uh, Dr. Yolano goes on, approximately 99.5% of DNA is similar in all humans, but the way it functions can vary greatly. In other words, although we all have almost similar DNA makeup. If these DNA sequences are differentially processed from each other, we end up having different faces, complexions, hair patterns and eye colour. This makes each person phenotypically and genotypically unique. The uniqueness of the DNA sequence between and among species is utilised in fingerprinting individuals to a high degree of accuracy. And so it's... when we, You know, when you think about... These aspects of, um, you know, how DNA, um, um, you know, molecule is there. Um, it's it's absolutely um, incredible. Um, DNA has a system um, that, if when it's uh, replicated, if there's a, an error. Um, it's, uh, it's provided corrects replication errors along the way. In some instances where an incorrect base is added, an enzyme DNA polymerase proofreads the base that's just been added and correspondingly corrects and replaces it with the correct nucleotide base. Where some errors are not corrected during replication, mismatch repair enzymes recognise the incorrectly added nucleotide and excise it, remove it, and then replace it with the correct one. These intricate delivery systems and extraordinary degree of timing and accuracy of these processes are hallmarks of intelligent design. You know, there's so much more that is a stand size, and that's why eventually, I mean, some mutations do get through under severe conditions. But again, this whole process is against evolution. The whole process is set up to preserve the code, not let it evolve and create all sorts of new things. Thus we have, from science, as we understand the science of DNA, it's powerful evidence for a creator God. Absolutely, you know, overwhelming evidence. And, of course, the DNA code is useless, as I mentioned before, unless we've got a ribosome, a code reader to read it and utilise the code. You know, the evidence pointing to a creator outside our physical existence, outside our universe, outside space and time that doesn't need a beginning fits the evidence that we have. It's got to be a super intelligence that did this. And it is such a shame that young people are not being taught this overwhelming evidence for a amazing creative designer. And, of course, we know through the experiences, answers, prayers, and, and the inspiration that God has preserved through the Bible that God came as Jesus and lived among us to teach us what the kingdom of God is right, like so that we can turn to him and believe. You know, if um, you want more information about these um, the amazing things of DNA, uh, there's a lot of information on the website um, www.creation.com. And of course, if you 
want to uh, re-listen to these programs, um, like today's talk, just Google 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the listen button. And remember, let your friends know, uh, put up links on your social media so that other people can learn this important evidence that there is an amazing creator God and a God who loves us. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 